This is That's Not A Story, a five-part podcast on what makes journalists tick and the world they work in. By the end of this series, you should have a good understanding of the challenges facing the media and why or why not a journalist might be interested in the stories you have to tell. I'm Rachel Williamson. I'm a foreign correspondent in journalism rehab, and I actively enjoy breaking unsolicited embargoes. And I'm Karis Palmer. I'm a journalism idealist, and I like to found media companies in my spare time. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're going to look at what makes a news sausage. And to talk about that, we've brought in two people who know exactly how the sausage factory works. Harrison Politis, PR and founder of Media Accelerator. It's his job to cater to the daily whims of journalists. And business journalist Sarah Dankett, who writes for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. She's won some really big journalism awards for her investigative work. Rachel, you and I know a lot of people have a very romantic idea of what goes into making a new sausage. And I'm going to start by saying it's no gourmet chorizo. You might imagine most news is journalists visiting reluctant sources late at night, working for months to break a big story no one else has, or getting their hands on a pile of classified documents about an Australian Prime Minister from some guy who bought some filing cabinets at a second-hand furniture auction. Okay, that second one is uh, actually happened to the ABC in 2018. In reality, it's a lot more like a hot dog, filled with this and that. Bits are added by a layer of middlemen and women, helping media-hungry people and businesses get the attention of a shrinking pool of journos. These people range from PRs to professional lobbyists and represent causes as diverse as fighting for oil companies to taking a stand for the poor. Basically, they all know how to sell a story. For example, in Lebanon, I was covering the Syrian refugee crisis. I needed a case study. The woman I contacted, who was head of a refugee aid organisation, had one key question. My news organisation wanted a family, so did the dad need to be dead? I was pretty surprised, but then she said, a lot of newspapers need the dad to be dead for the sob story to get into the paper. And on top of all your professional spinners, there are sites promising to connect you with a journalist. Source Bottle connects journos, and I'm quoting here, with sources seeking publicity, and Tellem enables journalists to put out a call for interviewees for a story that PRs then answer. This layer actually helps give journalists what they need in the 24-hour news cycle. Newspaper journalists once had to file a daily deadline. Now online journalists face rolling deadlines and are expected to file multiple stories a day. And there are less journalists to do it. There simply aren't enough hours in the day to make all these stories fly without help. Journos today also have a real-time feedback loop that favours quantity over quality. A lot, not all, but a lot of journos are encouraged to write more of the stuff people are clicking on or less of the stuff they don't. Niche sites are able to get a strong following, but finding daily stories in niche areas is pretty tough. So an AFR sausage is different to a Daily Mail sausage, which is different again to an ABC sausage. So what do journalists want in order to make their sausage? We'll be honest, there's no hard and fast rule for what makes news. Journalists break their own rules all the time. So we've brought in Harry, the PR, and Sarah, the investigative journalists, to tell us what the rules are and when they break them. Hi, Harry. Thanks for joining That's Not A Story. Thanks for having me. 
So Harry, I gave you your first job in journalism and now you earn a ton more money than me running your own tech PR firm. Tell me how you got there. So I, I worked at Business Spectator and Technology Spectator for about three years after I got that, that yes from you, Karen. And then at that point, I was looking for a new role. I went for a whole bunch of job interviews at a whole bunch of different places. And then I got approached for the third time, actually, by Asher Moses, who was the former tech editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. He was looking for a gun journalist to help start a new venture. And against my better judgment, I thought it was something to do more with journalism than PR. And so I kind of accidentally found myself in PR. Um, it became very apparent on day one of the job that it was a PR role, but they were, they were basically telling me the whole way through that essentially they wanted to leverage more of my journalism skills rather than try and retrain me into PR. And I was working with tech startups, which was a real passion of mine to write about when I was a reporter. So it started as a senior executive and then got promoted to an account manager. Ended up after three years of working at MNC as an associate director of the firm. So I uh, left MNC, wasn't sure what I was going to do, had a whole bunch of coffees with people. Uh, ended up moonlighting as a producer for that startup show, using some of those journalism skills again. Did some copywriting and a bit of string of, like stringer PR work. And then the work sort of started to come in a bit more steadily and people were starting to sort of hang with me doing their PR for several months and several months turned into six months and then six months turned into a year. And yeah, it sort of just evolved into a business. And now you've worked on both sides. How would you describe the media to someone who hasn't had much exposure to it? The, the general conception around journalism is that it's very romantic. It's very much, you know, you hunt down and investigate your own story and break it to the world and unearth these mammoth, earth-shattering facts that just change the way society is. And look, there is an element of that in modern journalism. There's plenty of stories that have really shaped society and are the reason that journalism is integral to democracy. But there's only a margin of the media that does that, and it's usually a very senior margin of media. What you usually find is that the day-to-day -day in journalism is essentially looking for stories in your inbox. So essentially going through press releases, company announcements, stringing themes together, listening to other media, and actually finding themes within other media that you can pull out. So the reality is you're more repurposing and thinking of original ideas by looking at existing facts rather than chasing down these long-winded investigations that may or may not end up in something. And I guess it's pragmatic because if every journalist chased down really long investigations and, you know, only one out of the 10 stood up, then you wouldn't have a very full paper every day. And how do you work with journalists? Can you talk us through the process of a PR drop or an exclusive? Um, the idea is you essentially bargain with exclusivity and with giving one reporter access to the news ahead of time. So by putting exclusive in the subject line, it gives me a higher chance of my email getting read to start off with. Journalists are generally pretty good that if you offer them an exclusive, generally speaking, they will get back to you with a yes or a no. If you just pitch them generally amongst pitching a whole bunch of other people, they can sort of like go, oh, well, you know, this isn't really targeted at me. It's kind of targeted at everyone. It's pretty simple in principle. There are a lot of stories around people screwing it up in practice. 
usually the thing that goes wrong um, more often than not is people get greedy. So PRs under pressure from their clients or alternatively the pressure that they put themselves under to try and overperform and actually generate more media for their client decide that one story isn't good enough. So they start doing what I would call probably like weaselly things like giving journalists an exclusive on an angle, giving a journalist an exclusive on an interview, giving a journalist an exclusive on a photo even. And the problem with this for anyone that's worked in journalism is that journalists obviously compete against each other and also measure each other by their, their work and they look at each other's work and are constantly sort of looking at their own work and looking at other people's and sort of yardsticking themselves within their industry. The problem here is that when you want, when you break an exclusive, you want it to be a clean exclusive. You want you to have the only one on the story with the story, particularly if you've got that red ink on it. Now, an exclusive interview isn't going to give you that unless you come up with a completely new story, nor is an exclusive picture, nor is a new angle because the keywords of the story are still the same. So often what you have happen is people promise an exclusive, but for some reason they just don't really understand that an exclusive means just that one outlet at, for that story until that story runs. Can you give us an example of a time when uh, you got it wrong, Harry? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can. I was the dumb, greedy PR where I had a client that um, wanted wall-to-wall coverage. They wanted all the major papers, all the publications to, to talk about this one story. Uh, and they were quite high profile as well. I thought the story was pretty career defining in that, you know, being the PR behind it would kind of set me up. So there was a lot of pressure on me to deliver. And I, I set up a very clean exclusive, but then I got, I got cold feet at the last minute that I thought other publications wouldn't pick up the story. So I was like, no, I need to give them some kind of heads up. I need to put a carrot in here so that they feel like, you know, they've at least gotten the story before it broke. So I sent the release for the story that was already a clean exclusive for tomorrow's paper, um, a major business publication at 10 p.m., two hours before that story was supposed to come out. And I'm like, who the hell would go at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, boot up their computer and write this out? Surely I'm safe. Surely this is, you know, not going to happen. Of course, it did happen. One of my uh, close journal contacts was at the pub, got the email, recognised that it was a very big story, recognised that because he got it at 10 o'clock, chances are his competitive publication had the exclusive on it and decided that, no, I'm sick of playing second fiddle to them. So he went, he wrote the story and put it up at 11.59pm, a minute, before the other story went up. And that original journey that I dealt with was not happy and rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> what do journalists want in that case? One of the fundamental points that I learned in PR pretty early on, and it was actually a lesson that I got from journalism, is that there is a really big difference between what journalists want to write and what journalists have to write. So what journalists want to write is stuff that either um, moves their career forward so it's a really big story that 
you know, helps their overall profile or alternatively it's stories that actually interest them because they're relevant to other points of interest within their lives. So it would be very easy to PR me or potentially pitch me something that aligns to my interests. So that brings us to why a story might not work. And um, let's talk about this from a, you know, your side and from a journalist's side. A story might not work for, for a myriad of reasons from a PR perspective. When a journalist comes to me and asks for an interview or asks for something outside of a pitch, I have to then find a way to sell it into the company that I'm working with that it's beneficial for them. It's tricky because you would think, well, the companies that I work with, they want press, right? Like they want media. Why wouldn't they just jump at every opportunity? But people, you know, some do. Others are a little bit more guarded with their time and some only do media when they feel they need to do media. There's definitely a spectrum. So that's usually the first reason a story doesn't stand up. It's because the executive doesn't want to do it and I can't, I can't convince them. I can't twist their arm to do it. The second reason is because the risks of the opportunity outweigh the benefit. So it's not the best reason because I think usually exposure is a pretty good benefit but sometimes there might be something that the journalist doesn't know with the topic that they're touching on that could potentially put the company at a fair bit of risk if they were to comment on it. So usually then it's sort of safer to say no. Sometimes you can give journos the exclusive on something and it's just simply not a good yarn. They just don't see a story or they see it as more of an ad than a story. And also sometimes the journos actually just done that story a week ago. So it's like, oh, well, we wrote something on that recently. So I'm not going to write another yarn on it when I could write something else. They're too busy. Something else has come up. The story isn't, isn't interesting enough. And again, all of this is completely fair enough. Like when you work in journalism, like you, you just understand why these things happen. So what are your top tips for people trying to make their own news sausage? First things first, don't get greedy. If you're starting out doing your own PR, go for one piece of good coverage that is actually relevant to the journey that you're pitching. Two, actually read the media. Like you would be surprised the amount of times that I talk to executives about issues that they actually genuinely have no clue about and they should. So actually read the media if you want to pitch the media. You can read it on multiple levels, like you can read it for like the issues and the substance of the story, but you can also do what I did earlier and you can read it and actually analyse what, you know, analyse the journal's coverage, analyse their tone, look at particular issues that they're covering over and over, understand what they know from their coverage and what they don't. Thanks for joining us, Harry. And now Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Can you start off by explaining how you got into journalism and your current role? Yeah, well, I didn't get into journalism via a journalism school. I got into journalism through media and doing media studies and, and, and television. It was one of those stories that would probably, you know, terrify a lot of journalism graduates to hear that I flipped a job at Australian Associated Press through a regular customer at a cafe that I worked in and parlayed that through into now being a senior business reporter for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you talk to anyone in PR, they say there's a pretty Hollywood-level understanding of how journalists work. 
You actually do investigative journalism, so can you talk us through the process? Is it actually dark alleys and abandoned car parks? Oh, it can be. It can be, but most often it's not. Most often there's, there's a lot less glamour. Sometimes it's sitting in the back row of a courtroom for five weeks unnoticed by all other parties in the case who think that you might be from the tax office and they don't realise that you're a journalist taking down every every detail of, of all their malfeasance that they would rather have kept behind closed doors. Less, less abandoned car parks and more dodgy pubs in the suburbs. Yes, there is a level of, I guess, that Hollywood glamour, but it's also this, the mundanity of, of, of reading through 500 page reports and, and finding in a footnote you know, something that contradicts something that the, you know, a politician or, or a business person might have said recently. And that's a crumb that leads you to more and more findings. So I guess that brings us to how you find these stories. So the, the, the investigation, the, the research that goes into them is, is, as you say, often just mundane slog. But where do they come through? I mean, do you sift through your in- inbox for a solid tip? Do organisations come to you saying we've found something or is it just overhearing something on the street or in a pub and going, oh, okay? I don't get a lot of stuff in my inbox. There's not a lot of stuff floating in. And certainly with great respect to the people in the public relations industry who do their job well, I I don't get stories through that. I, I generally, and I've always, even before I started doing investigative journalism, focused on largely on stories that people didn't want told. Um, I think that's something you can relate to, Rachel, with some of the business stuff that you've done. And uh, often you're actually, you know, reading in between the lines or, or picking them up on a fault. And that's what leads you to, to go, well, what's going on here? Or a massive share price spike. A couple of stories be worth noting that was really interesting that shows how it can come from human capital, so to speak, or from actual people was 7-Eleven. That was brought to us by a consumer advocate, a guy called Michael Fraser. And he had um, gone into his local 7-Eleven and befriended the bloke working there and just said one night, you must be earning a fortune with all these penalty rates. And the young man's response was, sorry, what, what penalty rates? And he started explaining that they ought to be earning penalty rates. And that young man working at the 7-Eleven went and told all of his friends who then all started talking to Michael and it spread throughout WhatsApp groups of 7-Eleven workers that there was this big problem. And along came Adele Ferguson and, and, and I was in there as well to pick through, through that mess. So a lot of the time, Sarah, you get a leak or you get a, you know, a good lead, you take it back to your editor and they just say, oh, mm, that could be defamatory. Or that person's really litigious, uh, might come after us, probably want to leave that alone. Can you talk about how much of an issue defamation is to you doing your job? It's absolutely massive. If there's one thing I I wish that normal people could know is the the constraints that we, we work under as journalists, especially investigative journalists and especially journalists who, who write on well-funded people. I write on a lot of businessmen. The threat of defamation law hangs over our head and so much and guides so much of what we can do in part it's not as simple as you saying something terrible about someone and whether you can prove that to be true there have been examples in defamation cases where 
people haven't been allowed to use stuff said in court or findings from a royal commission as any form of evidence in their reporting and they've been asked to reprove the findings of a royal commission again. The, the, the bar is beyond ridiculously high. So I've had legal threats. As soon as I've started calling around about a company, then just prior to publishing, then just after publishing, it's, it's ridiculous that that, that, that can cause um, not just big organisations, but freelance journalists and smaller groups to be much more cautious in, in what they can do. I mean, how much appetite can, a, you know, a great publication like Crikey, how much appetite can they have for, for defamation writs in a year? Someone like Adele Ferguson, who crosses every T and dots every I, trust me on that. And even she will have to go through these, these strange sort of kabuki dances that you have to do with these defamation threats, even though these things have been set on the public record or they've been presented in a fair, fair way. It's all part of, I think, trying to shut the conversation down. Can you give us an example of a story that went well from beginning to end? So I think it's important to know that there are stories we do knock back. We don't just get a whiff of of something and go, yes, that's page one. I'm going to stitch this up and, and cook this up and shape this in a way that, that, that suits just this perspective. There's a lot, an enormous amount of vetting and enormous number of, of wasted hours where you don't end up doing a story. But I think it's worth pursuing those things just to, just to see if there is anything in it. So, Sarah, just to wrap up and extending from that, what pointers would you offer for people trying to understand journalists better and the work that they do? Time is the biggest factor to, to, to consider. You know, if, if the treasurer has said something that afternoon, there are quote-unquote renter quotes on speed dial we can call, but to get to, to the best people to offer that analysis... And then to be able to present that in 450 words means that some of the context and some of those additional quotes and some of the exact nature that, that readers deserve, some of that does get lost. There aren't phalanxes of reporters anymore. When they talked about hundreds of reporters being lost in 2012, know that it was thousands and know that there used to be reporters that could sit there and do one or two stories a week and those same people are doing two stories a day and that's not their fault. If they had could only do two stories a day and do them better over an entire week, they would gladly put up their hand to do that. And, and I, I really do think that if people looked at uh, what we try and present in the newspaper as being having to be a certain length and done over a certain time but perhaps people would be a bit more forgiving. So there you have it, two very interesting perspectives from both sides of the journalism fence. So what can you take away from this? Journalism isn't glamorous but those that do it love it and you should never underestimate them. Journos work hard to get or vet stories and they're highly competitive. If you promise a journo an exclusive you better make sure it's exactly that. Remember, there can be a big difference between what journalists want to write and what they have to write, so it pays to work out what they're interested in. Read the media, not just for the substance of the story, but to analyse the coverage and how journos approach different issues you might be interested in talking about. And lastly, everything you see in the media would be better if there were more people and more time. 
they just simply aren't. So try not to judge the end product without considering the deadline and staffing pressure that goes with it. In our next episode, Rachel and I will talk about news. What is news and what's not? What's fake news? What is sponsored content? And what does it all mean for you? You've been listening to That's Not A Story with Rachel Williamson and Karis Palmer. Our theme music is by MBB. MBB.